The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening, everyone. Welcome. And uh, maybe, as we did last week, if you have any questions you want to ask, this might be a good time. Some people might still be coming, and so to start officially a little bit. Do you have any any questions about what I taught last week or about your meditation up here on the stage? Yeah. Yeah, If you can use the mic, please. Can you hear me? Um, So one of the things that I don't seem to be able to do is to be able to observe my thoughts. I guess the thoughts or the emotions maybe are so strong that I just, you know, I'm hopped on that train and I don't realize it till I've kind of come off the train. So I was wondering if you had suggestions. Yeah, hold it closer because maybe my hearing's not so good, so I really have to have get the, the mic. Yeah, so I'm not able to observe my thoughts. Yeah. Um, I, I guess maybe they're, I'm just so attached to them. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions. Yeah. I don't know what to say. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, then I wouldn't worry about it. But do you notice when you're lost in thought? I notice afterwards, after I've kind of got off the train, I can say, okay, I've and how, probably spent... And how, how long do you spend on the train? It, it, it could be 30 seconds, it could be two minutes, it could be five minutes. So, so one, one way to deal with it is uh, just be content with that. And slowly, what you're doing is trying to develop your mindfulness. So when you come to, after however long it is, just emphasize, uh, exercise the muscle of mindfulness and try to be present for a while, to be with what's going on. And slowly over time, you'll settle, you'll relax, that the, uh, your ability to be mindful will get stronger. And at some point, it'll be time for you to see your thoughts as they occur. And you won't get pulled into them so quickly. That's one thing you could do. But uh, uh, is there any time during the day where you're self-reflective about the fact that you're thinking? Like, do you ever say, I have to think about a shopping list now? Or Yes, I mean, there could be lesser th- things, or it could be, you know, more serious stuff. You know, like my mom died a few years ago, so a whole bunch of stuff was happening with the estates. That I understand. But it could, could be as simple... It because I'm having trouble hearing. It, it could be as simple as, yeah, did I pay my... You know, water bill or something like so, that. So, so find something which you can think about that you can watch. Also, that you okay. can stay, you can stay mindful as you're thinking, and see what you can learn about yourself. So probably p- pick a one that's uh, weaker, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, but maybe not in meditation. But uh, but then you, as you go about your day, and and you have one of those weaker ones, and you're and you're uh, you're aware that you're thinking. Just start, start start paying attention to some of the different characteristics of your thinking, like we did yesterday, last last week. Okay, thank you. And then slowly you'll become more familiar, and maybe then you won't be pulled in so quickly. The other thing about uh, thinking that uh, it, uh, the more easily we get caught in thought, the more likely there's tension somewhere in our system in our body, in our mind. So when you finally catch yourself uh, being lost in thought, oh, one of the things to do at that point is check in. 
where am I tense? Because people who notice their thinking and they just come back to their breathing without doing anything else, um, the conditions for thinking are still there. So you have to relax. So, so see if you can just take a deep breath and just relax and see, see what can be relaxed. And that could be the body, it could be the, the thinking muscle itself, the kind of tension around in the mind where you're thinking. Because tension is kind of like this. Um, that um, I don't know if any of you have had the experience that um, if you're squeezing a toothpaste tube, you could be wiping it off from the, from the opening, trying to get it away, and it'll keep coming out. You have to stop squeezing. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful of your thinking, but um, too much. <laughs> but um, but if, if there's a lot of tension in our system, it's kind of like the toothpaste tube is being squeezed. You know, so you have to stop squeezing. And so don't just let go of your thoughts and come back. Spend some time in seeing where the tension is and see if you can soften a little bit. Don't be too ambitious about relaxing, but it is really helpful to relax. Someone else? Yeah, I found that uh, the labeling technique that you mentioned, I think in one... The which technique? The labeling technique, yes. uh-huh. that is when I'm racing, so uh-huh. every so often it pop up and say, okay, that was that, and then go again in the train. So that was helping and slowly kind of... Fantastic. Yeah, the labeling for some people is extremely helpful, and that also might help you with your thinking, that um, if, you have a, if, you, if you have a kind of relaxed, ongoing rhythm of just labeling your experience, in-breath, out-breath, sound, itch... Breath, in-breath, out-breath, belly tight, feeling tightness, breathing in, breathing out, thinking. Uh, if you have that habit, that, regular, that, that you're using a thinking to keep you present rather than using your thinking to take you away. So an idle mind sometimes wants to do something. And so sometimes you want to give the thinking mind something to do. And the labeling gives it something to do. And the regular... But it's helping you out rather than taking you away. Some people complain about labeling because it just makes the mind more busy, they think. However, it's actually better than the alternative, which is the getting lost in thought all over and over again. And then also, because if you have a regular kind of gentle rhythm of noting, you're less likely, more likely to notice if you get lost in thought because you stop labeling. So that's a... So that, I'm glad you brought it up to... Good evening. Um, I remember the first class you mentioned that there was a reason for your ordering of the breath, body, emotion, thought. I was wondering if you could remind us what that is. And then I seem to recall there was something about it that was maybe culturally based. Culture? Culturally based, yeah. and I was wondering if you would have a different order if you were teaching the class in a different part of the world. Um, uh, 
Well, I think one of the cultural things that's uh, has developed in Buddhism in in the United States is putting much more emphasis on emotions. Uh, if you go to and uh, and so the, a very famous uh, Westerner who's a very senior monk in Thailand now. He's a monk, Ajahn Sumedho, and he's almost retired now. But um, uh, he says he's fluent in Thai, but also he teaches a lot in English. And he says he teaches differently for the two communities. For the Thais, they don't have the same um, acculturation around Freud and Jung and Western psychology that is kind of part and parcel of some of the popular or common culture in the United States. And so it's so, so, so common here in the United States that people don't even know that it's where it comes from. It's just part of life. It's just what's obvious, isn't it? But we use language, we use thoughts, we use orientations that are very much only 100 years old and kind of crept into our culture in the West. They don't have that in Thailand. So here, Ajahn Sumedha will talk about psychology, emotions, acceptance, all these things that have to do with psychology. He would never do that in Thailand. The Thais, that wouldn't compute and it wouldn't work. So there are cultural differences that we take into account. And... Um, and in fact, it's hard to find in some Indian languages a nice, clean word for the English word emotion. It's even more so in, the, in Pali, the ancient language. So we, we've organized the human pie. We all have the same pie. We're all humans. But we cut the pie pieces in different sizes or in different ways. And we have this, we've, we've made this cut in the pie and called it emotions. They cut it a little bit differently and call it some could be something else. And so, uh, so those are kind of cultural differences. And uh, so the logic of what I did is that it's a, uh, uh, thinking is hard for many people to be, uh, it's one of the biggest obstacles to being present because we get pulled into thoughts. It's a lot easier, to, and if you, if you start with being mindful of thinking, <clears throat> what it's going to be is thinking about thinking. It's not really going to be mindfulness. So it's a lot easier to be mindful of thinking uh, if you have a, some mindfulness of your emotions. Because a lot of the uh, thoughts, especially the ones that drive us or catch us, have an emotional base. The, the emotions are sometimes the factory. Sometimes it's the other way around. <clears throat> but <clears throat> as a generically, that's kind of... It's easier. Then emotions are always present moment phenomena. Thoughts could be about the past and the future, and we get pulled out of the present. <clears throat> So, so it's easier to be with thinking if we know if we're connected to the emotions. It's easier to be with emotions if you're connected to the body. The body creates a container, a context, a safety, a grounding to be with emo- emotions that is hard to do if, for some people if you just, <clears throat> some emotions are just so difficult. Just be aware of your emotions and some people have panic attacks or something. And so, but if you have the body as a foundation, it's easier grounding and it's uh, easier to ground yourself in your body, some people say, in if you uh, start with uh, um, breathing. And uh, breathing kind of kind of stabilizes some people. It gets you out of your head enough. And so it's easier to be with your body. What I've seen in a recent generation of Vipassana teachers, like what I'm teaching here, is that we have much more diversity now among the teaching community. So the, in my generation, we're basically white, privileged people. And so they had a particular way in which they organized 
or had to deal with the world. With a newer generation of teachers who come from very diverse populations, some really disadvantaged populations in this culture, where there's been a lot of trauma, they, uh, they, they find that it's much better to start with the body than with breathing. And so, that in a sense, that's a cultural difference as well. And so, so for them, I'm not as trauma-sensitive in my teachings for a certain population uh, than they are, and that's true. You know, so we have to, I have to kind of navigate all these, all these different issues. There's cultures within our culture, right? So how do we manage with it all? So is that... Hi, Gil. Um, I, like everyone else, I'm suffering through the, all of these uh, uncontrolled thoughts coming, uh, um, entering uh, my mind when I'm uh, meditating and it comes and goes, etc. But I wanted to say that uh, I've been, um, since the pandemic, I've been uh, attending the morning sessions. Um, pretty much every day that uh, that's on. And uh, I'm finding uh, over the past three years, I feel more settled. I don't know how. I feel my language has changed. I refrain from saying some of the things I used to say or the way I said them before. Um, I can't, I'm not sure how, it's wisdom or whatever, but I see it when I digress or move away from what I think I should be doing. I see it right away. Perhaps before I was oblivion to it. So it does work. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how, but it does work. Yes, and uh, that's all I had to say. Great, I, uh, thank you. I love hearing that. That's a nice testimonial. It does work, and it's a slow process. And uh, slowly, we begin to be able to monitor to see what's happening while as it's happening, and we have more choice. We have a choice with the words we use and the activities we do because we see it coming. We see ourselves in the middle of it, and and there's much more awareness. Also, the meditation provides a different reference point for what it means to be alive. That uh, you discover that it's okay, that you can be alive and feel at ease. You can be alive and feel um, comfortable in your skin. You can be alive and feel a kind of ethical sensitivity. That the body, that's one of the reasons so good to be in the body, connected to it, the body is kind of an ethical antenna that uh, it picks up and understands when something is ethically off. It'll understand it in yourself, the attentions, the yuckiness. It's very subtle, but if you're lost in thought all the time or filled with greed and hatred all the time, you don't have that subtle tuning in to the the antenna that's here. But if you're uh, slow down, quiet down, heightened sensitivity, and one of the consequences of that is heightened ethical, uh, wanting to live an ethical life. 
So, um, and uh, it's quite inspiring to see it in people as they get into this practice. So you, you kind of describe that. I feel there's someone next to me watching everything I do. Yeah, and it's yourself, right? It's myself, but kind in, in of, a way, of. you know, in, in private you may think yeah. or do something, but not in presence of others. Yeah, very nice. I feel there's somebody right next to me. Fantastic, and, yeah, kind of fantastic. So, so this heightened ethical sensitivity is part of what happens through this practice. And um, and you're not even asking for it. <laughs> Some of you are going to run, run away now. <laughs> and um, and one of the things that the probably one of the more common ethical reports that people come to me about here, people who work in a kind of a business environment where work environment where people kind of hang out at the coffee machine or at snack time talking about things, and they say, you know, the the medium for talking at work is gossip. But I don't want to gossip anymore. It doesn't feel good. But it, now it's really hard to be social with people. It's like now I feel like I'm disconnected or I'm not part of the gang. And it's kind of awkward because that's, what, how, that's how people connect is by gossiping. But it just feels wrong to do it. So, um, and then there's people who find out that they, the work they do, I remember some, one person who said that uh, the company he worked with was got a commissioned a job to make parts for uh, uh, fighter jets. And he went to his boss and said, you know, I can't do that. Can I be assigned to something else? And so he was. And so it wasn't that anybody taught them to be ethical. It's just this ethical antenna develops inside. And what I'd like to say is that that antenna is you already. So it's not like anybody's imposing anything on you. It's like you, you, that capacity to feel and sense in a deeper ethical way uh, is, is ever present in you, just mostly you're distracted from it. You know, busy and too busy to notice. So for me, that's very inspiring. I don't know what some of you think about that. I usually, I never said this in intro class. <laughs> Though I have said sometimes that we could just call this a, a five-week introduction to ethics. But then no one would come. <laughs> so, um, okay, so let's uh, get ethical. Let's meditate. And um, so what I'll do is, uh, it'll be a guided kind of mindfulness exercise. It's not exactly how you should meditate. You could if you want, but it's, it's, but it's to give you a, 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 um, a direct experience of a way that mindfulness can work. So the way that we teach it here is, as I've said, the default is to cultivate mindfulness and stability, steadiness, continuity of attention on the breathing. But if anything happens that uh, is pulling on your attention, if it's just a sound in the room and it doesn't pull you away from the breathing, don't worry about it. But if a sound is strong enough, it starts pulling you away, then... Follow your attention. Follow where your awareness is drawn. And, uh, and, and be aware. Note mental labeling of what that is that has your attention. Know it. Be mindful of that for a while. And then when that's no longer compelling, come back to your breathing. And so that could be the body. It could be emotions. It could be uh, thinking. It could be sounds in the room. It's a lot of different things it could be. But the idea is we're always going back to the center. So in this exercise, 
I'm going to, we're going to alternate between being with the breathing and then going out to these uh, three other areas that I've taught you about today. And then uh, I'll add one more area uh, to that. So that, that's what we'll be doing, okay? So, so assume a meditation posture. If it's the end of the day and you feel really tired, you might feel like relaxing back. I would suggest that for this time, you sit up straighter. So there's a little bit more energy coming out of your body into your mind. And if you're tense and agitated from a difficult day, then you might want to settle back and rest a little bit more in the backrest or And then, with gently closing your eyes, or if you keep them half open, have them pointed down towards the floor. And to transition into the meditation, you could take a few long, slow, deep breaths. Deep enough, maybe like three quarters full, not, not without a strain, but full enough lungs that you feel your insides, your rib cage expand, stretch. And then relax on the exhale with a longer relaxation, a longer exhale than usual. Just to allow more settling in the shoulders and the arms maybe the belly. And then letting your breathing return to normal. And continue for a few breaths to see if there's more places in your body that you can relax, soften. And this relaxing the body is also a way of becoming more sensitive to the body, attuned to your body. And then you might also see if in the mind, the thinking mind, is there any tension, pressure, contraction associated with thinking, thinking mind. And if there is, as you exhale, soften the thinking mind as if it's a muscle, relaxing the thinking muscle. And then, 
center yourself on your breathing. Your body, your torso, has its own experience of breathing. Follow that experience as you breathe in and breathing out. And now, switch your attention from breathing to some, the most compelling sensation in your body. It doesn't have to be that strong, but whatever it might be. And the body has its own experience of that place, of those sensations. Notice how the body is experiencing this strong bodily sensation. Letting your awareness be close in or letting your awareness rest in this place in your body while you feel it, receive the sensations. And for a few moments, to allow this bodily sensation to be there as if, as if it has full permission. It's okay. And for you, you accompany it. You're present with it. and then return to the breathing. Maybe there's some way that you can center yourself on the breathing. The body breathing. And then in a relaxed way, notice the predominant 
emotion or mood or mind state, inner state that you have. It doesn't have to be easily identified as an emotion, but some state that you have and allow it to be there for these few moments of mindfulness as if it's never had a chance to be in the sun, the sun of awareness. Let it be there and just notice it, feel it. Feel how it's experienced in the body. See if you can experience your emotional state, mood, state of mind, without any stories connected to it, without adding and adding any meaning to it. Just let it be what it is. And then return to your breathing. If it helps you, you might take a little bit stronger, fuller in-breath to reconnect. And then continuing now for a three-breath journey. Just give yourself over to three breaths. And now switch your attention to your thinking, whether it's strong or weak, whether it fades away if you notice it. Notice your thinking. 
and see if you can notice how you're, you're thinking without thinking more. Very simple matter of fact. If there's an emotion connected, connected to it, be aware of that. If there's body sensations connected to it, include awareness of that. Return to your breathing, re-establishing yourself on the body breathing. shift of attention. Now become aware, more aware of how you're mindful as you're aware of breathing or anything else. How would you characterize how you're aware? Is there any strain involved? Expectation? Is there any hesitation or reluctance or or lack of commitment? And then come back to your breathing.
So we'll continue for just a few more minutes, maybe with the breathing at the center. But as you need to, become aware of whatever pulls your attention. And then return to the breathing. And then to end this sitting, you can take some long, slow, deep breaths, feeling the contact of your body against whatever surface that you're connected to. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So this is a particular way of doing mindfulness meditation. There are many different ways it's taught. And, um, and I just want to say that for some people, what works best is to just stay with what I taught the first evening, mindfulness of breathing. And don't make it any more complicated than that. And, um, and if all you did was every time you wandered off, you came back to your breathing, stayed with it, and developed stability in your breathing, it can be phenomenal. 
a, a Buddhist teacher that I spent time with in Japan said that everything you need to know about Buddhism will be discovered through your breathing. So it's breathing is considered very, really great. So if that's what you want to keep it really simple, that's one opportunity for you. One of the reasons why we expanded outwards to include the body, the emotions, and thinking, and then other things as we go off, is that then more of our life comes under the purview of our attention and awareness. And the more we can hold everything in, in awareness, it tends to move our whole life towards health. It tends to move to freedom, to healing, to all kinds of good things. And we learn how to be present in life for our emotions, for our thinking, for different parts of our life. And it, it, there'd be a time when it's really useful to have that skill. When I was a Zen student, <clears throat> um, I was pretty good at the breath meditation thing. But I had no idea how to be mindful of my anger. In fact, I didn't even know I was angry. People would tell me, Gil, you're so angry. And I said, really? <laughs> um, and uh, there was uh, no, um, no teaching about how to notice your emotions and be mindful of them. And so they were just there operating in the background, kind of subconsciously then, and having their effect and influence on me. Same thing with the thinking. And so to be able to have a practice that encompasses everything, um, in my mind, and Buddhism doesn't say this explicitly, is that then your awareness becomes sacred. It's so special to have an awareness that nothing is left out, nothing's outside of it. Nothing is not acceptable for awareness to hold. Then it's a, you enter into a kind of almost like a different universe if everything can be held in awareness. And, um, and so, so we're learning how to do that in this practice, how everything has a place for an awareness, how everything we can include and be present for it. And the big, big, big delight, the aha moment for me in, um, when I was practicing in Asia was um, I was learning about how to be mindful and I was learning just, just a simple act of mindfulness there was a kind of freedom that could be found there. Freedom from entanglement, freedom from being for and against. Variety of kind of freedom. And I said, wow. And I had this moment where I kind of stopped, in my, literally stopped in my tracks. And I realized that if, uh, I thought, you know, I can be mindful of anything that's an experience, anything that it's a direct experience that I'm having in the moment. In theory, I can be mindful of it. And so in theory, I could be free in relationship to everything. I was just, and I got so happy that, wow, that kind of freedom is possible in this world? Uh, and it comes from being mindful, being present for experience. So we're trying to teach you here at IMC a way of uh, in, uh, uh, bringing in or encompassing your whole life in the scope of mindfulness, of awareness. And, um, and so one of the things that includes then is uh, not just meditation, but bringing the practice into daily life. And one of the great rewards that I get from this, teaching this is when people come meditating for a little while and they say, that's just fine and good, this meditation, but how do I bring this into my life? How do I bring more mindfulness into my daily life and my activities of what I do? And... Um, the line between 
your, you in meditation and you outside of meditation is an arbitrary line. And, and this, the, the deeper ethical sensitivity, deeper sense of peace, of calm, or deeper intimacy with yourself, deeper sense of not being caught, seeing more choice in how you, what you're doing and you meditate, all these good things that happen in, in mindfulness, why should you only do it in, while you're meditating? Why not the rest of your life? That was my big question that brought me to live at a Buddhist monastery. I wasn't so much interested in exactly in the monastery. I was interested in how to expand what was happening in meditation, in talking with people, working, doing the different things that I do. And so a very important part of this practice, or potential of this practice, is to start bringing mindfulness in daily life activities. So rather than being distracted, and we live in a distracted culture, distracting culture. I mean, people have written about this, or people get paid a lot of money to keep you distracted, or to, to grab your attention and keep it going, you know, and get more clicks on the, your device and whatever to get people's attention. It's, it's, you know. And so people's minds, they are jumping around, jumping and jumping and jumping here and here and here. And in doing that, they're not being mindful, they're not centered, settled on their experience here and now. And um, and so uh, so to bring this mindfulness into daily life uh, is helped a lot by find things you can do that you just do that one thing. Don't multitask. If you're at home and cooking, just cook. Don't have the radio. If anybody has radios anymore, the podcasts. Don't have, um, you know, music, don't have, don't be on the phone, don't have all of them on at the same time, and read the news on your on your, your tablet. You know, just do cooking. Just to be, as you're chopping a carrot, just be there, like you would be just with your breathing and meditation, just be with a carrot and chopping the carrot. Put your attention in your hands. Have your eyes looking at what you're doing and, be, and then watch your mind. And let, if your mind wanders off talk, thinking about something else, then, you know, this is boring. Come back. No, there's more, you know, I have a lot to do. I have to multitask, otherwise I can't do all these things. Come back. It's just you and the carrot. And, and then slowly you'll learn something about getting concentrated, you'll reclaim your mind that you've lost to the distractions. You, and you'll feel how delicious it is to be present for activity. Washing your dishes, just do the dishes with both hands. You don't have to do this, of course, but if you want to start learning how to bring mindfulness into your daily life, you have to train, you have to practice it and develop it, that capacity. And then, um, and then start expanding where you do it. Um, what I learned from Zen, a little trick from Zen, was every time I walk through a door frame, you're walking into a new place. Pay attention. Be mindful of the place you're walking into. It was, it's been a fantastic thing to do. Uh, I'm certainly capable of being, uh, doing very important things, like thinking about how I'm going to teach mindfulness to you 
caught up in that. And I just walked, you know, from one room to my house to another room in the house, and like thinking, that, you know, I'm capable of that. But it's, that's not a good life either. It's good to be present for the life you're living. It might seem boring. It might seem you're not getting a lot of excitement in your life then. But it's kind of like you have to go a transition time, kind of like withdrawal time, like withdrawing from caffeine, to switch over to being present until being present is delicious. It's deeply satisfying. It's kind of like you now you feel a sense of integrity or wholeness or completeness or contentment with whatever you're doing because you're present for it in a good way. And then when you do that, that becomes a vantage point for wisdom. And one of the qualities of what what mindfulness is leading to is wisdom, to understand better what we do in our lives. And, um, And so once you have some subtleness, some stability, some continuity of mindfulness, uh, that becomes uh, um, uh, uh, that helps highlight when you start losing it. So an analogy that's given is that if you have a, a, a napkin or a towel or something that's full of stains, really dirty, you and no one else might notice one more stain. It's just not noticed. But if you clean it and bleach it and there are no stains, then you notice the dirt spot that comes. And then you clean it or do something. So it turns out the same thing with our mind. If our mind is fragmented, busy, running around, doing too many things, distracted from distractions by distractions, then you don't see what you're doing. One more mean word. I mean, you don't even know you've been mean to someone because... You know, you're, you're mean all the time. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> it's just normal or something. But when you settle down and become calm, you see the meanness coming. Oh, look, there it is. You know, oh, wow, that's a big deal. I didn't know how I did it so much. And so we start, we start seeing how this works. So I want to do a demonstration to you of what you might see about how your mind works when you are settled enough and mindful enough to see. And um, and I hope that this is kind of an analogy to you. So the idea is you apply this to yourself in some way. So it's a kind of show and tell. So... Okay, so here we have a flower. There's a famous story in Zen that once upon a time, the Buddha had an assembly of people listening to him, ready for him to give a Dharma talk, a sermon. And he didn't say anything, but he lifted up a single flower like this. Maybe most people were perplexed. But one of his disciples smiled. And he knew that that disciple understood. 
So then we're supposed to figure out what the meaning of the story is. But this idea of holding up a flower. So the flower, many people think a flower is beautiful. A flower is a flower. And with one flower like this, we have what in Buddhism is called the suchness of the flower. The flower is just being the flower. It is itself. It doesn't even, even use the word flower to describe itself. It just is. The isness of the flower. It's content being itself. Happy. But, now look what happens. Now, let's see how I do this. Now I'm holding up two flowers. And now we can say something about the first flower we couldn't say before. We can say that this flower in my left hand is the big flower. And this is the small flower. Big, small. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. It's, this is the big one, right? So there's, I'm going to do a sleight of hand. And you're going to see how, and I'm not going to do it so fast so you don't see the magic. You're going, to, you're, going to be, you're going to see how the magic works. And some of the magic is your mind. So this was the big flower, right? It's kind of wilted, but... Yeah. Now, this is the big flower. And the big flower has become the smaller flower. You see that? Small flower, big flower. Wait a minute. Big flower, small flower. What is it? It's a flower. The isness of the flower. But the human mind can compare. And some things only exist in the comparison. Big and small only exists in the mind that compares. It's not inherent in the flower. A lot of human suffering comes from comparisons, one way or the other. Compare ourselves to others, to ourselves in the past, or in the future, or ideals, and all kinds of things. As we get quieter, and mindfulness gets stronger, we start seeing the mind doing this. We see the birth of a comparison. And because we see it in mindfulness, we have a choice whether, you know, do we believe it? Is this a useful comparison? If I want to ask someone to go get the big flower, then that's useful because I say the big flower, not the small one, there's only two. So that's, that's practical. But um, go get the ugly flower. Or get the beautiful flower for me. Thank you. Bring me the beautiful person. No, no, bring me the ugly person. I mean, isn't that painful that we live in a world like that? And so, you know, we do a lot of comparisons. And I, you know, I did a lot of it when I was younger for myself. Uh, you know, I... My self-worth was tied to 
all kinds of things about my body. You know, I grew up in the hippie times, so I was a little bit, little bit young for it, but I used to sit in school pulling my hair to make it grow faster because that's what it took. Or it was just, it was just the generation I was in, junior high school, middle school, when um, they started um, bleaching blue jeans and they would, some people would actually put them on the road for cars to drive over. They're brand new, right? Or put them through the washing machine 10, 12 times to really make them look old and they would tear them and all that. And so I didn't know this. This kind of happened over the course of a summer when I was away in Europe. And I came back and my hair was shorter and my blue jeans were new. <laughs> and this was a disaster. <laughs> I was no longer acceptable. Whereas when I lived in Italy for that summer, I had longer hair than any of the Italians, men, boys. So I was cool. And all I had to do was fly over the Atlantic and come back to the United States and I was no longer cool. Right? Big small fires, big flower, small flower, cool man, boy, not cool boy. It's ridiculous, right, when you just, uh, describe it that way. But we do this kind of thing all day long. So part of the wisdom of this practice is have the foundation, the subtleness, the clarity that we can see this operating as it's operating. We can see it in ourselves. we can see it in other people. It's tragic what happens in our society around these kinds of things. But to see it in ourselves and then see it clearly enough, we don't buy into it. We see it for what it is before we get hooked, before it drives us, evokes emotions and tensions and all kinds of things. So this is an example of the wisdom that can arise from the practice. Because we see what goes on in the mind. So this mindfulness of thinking is not just an abstract thing. It has tremendous uh, consequence and application as we go about our life. And so to cultivate, slowly cultivate the greater and greater capacity for mindfulness. So then in terms of daily life and bringing it to daily life, it's invaluable to meditate every day or six days a week. And um, the um, and the trick about that is to uh, sit as long as it allows you to sit every day. So if you say, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes, but your life doesn't allow for that, then you get discouraged and you give it up. But if you can only do 10 minutes... Do 10 minutes. And probably you should be able to get 10 minutes in. If you can't, do it anyway and find out what's going on. Find out what emotions, what beliefs, what feelings, what restlessness, what anxiety is operating that you can't take 10 minutes to meditate. You'll learn a lot about yourself. That you won't learn if you just give in to all those things and go about, you know, not paying any attention, being driven by your, whatever, your, your desires or anxieties. So sitting every day for 10 minutes, what m- might happen to you is that you might find that 10 minutes after a while feels too short. Well, don't sit longer because I said so. <laughs> but if you say so, well, it's okay. 
if you get the feeling, you know, it's nice. I'd like to sit more. You might start seeing that it makes a difference in your daily life. You might find that you're kinder. You might find that you're more relaxed. You might find that you're more paced in what you do. You might, some people actually say that, um, that uh, they meditate regularly and they don't really see the effect after a while. They say, well, does it really do me any good? And then they stop. They go, oh boy, that was a hard day. I, you know, I got so much more agitated, so much more anxious, so much more, you know, speeded up. So the idea is if you sit every day for a short period of time, start bringing mindfulness into daily life. Um, I don't know how it is so much nowadays, but um, uh, there was a time where uh, I could feel that if my telephone rang, there was some inner drive that it was essential to pick up the phone, answer the phone as quickly as possible. No one ever told me that, but I felt like it was urgent. I have to get there. And I learned you don't have to do that. Most people don't hang up after two rings. And I found that I used that as a mindfulness bell. I would use that to check in with myself, breathe, relax, and maybe the fourth or the fifth, not, not so long, right? Four or five rings. But just that little bit of time to be connect with myself, change my posture, relax. I was so much better shape to answer the phone. I had much better conversations because I took that time to just gave myself that time. So there's a lot of these things you can do through the day. And, um, and the more you do it, the wiser you'll become. Meaning, the more clarity, you'll, you'll see more clearly what you're actually doing. You'll see the effect that desires and ill will has. And you'll say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. I knew someone here at IMC who had resentment for an ex-partner for I think seven years. And then one day she was being mindful about her experience of resentment. And she said to wait a minute, I'm harming myself more than him. <laughs> and then she gave up her resentment. So to really see the, the cost of these things. So here's another teaching story that comes from Buddhism. Uh, it has to do with uh, how you, apparently, how you uh, catch trap monkeys in India. So you take a coconut and you, you cut a slit in it and kind of carve out a little bit the inside. And you put some candy inside because apparently monkeys like sweets. But it's, the, the cut is a slot, like, you know. So in order for the monkey to get the, the hand into the slot, it has to have the hand flat and it can get in. But in order to grab the candy, it makes a little bit of a fist. And once it's a fist, it, it can't get it out that slot. But it's so greedy, it's not going to let go. And so the hunter just comes and picks it up. Because, oh, because the coconut is attached to a rope, to a tree, right? So it, so it can't go anywhere. And so, um, and so the monkey was so consumed by its greed, 
it doesn't see the, the dangerous position it was putting himself in. But if the, maybe if the monkey had been mindful, he would have maybe felt the problems of having this fist that can't get out. And then he would have let go and pulled his hand out. So we can feel that for ourselves. We can feel the effect of greed, how it makes us impatient, how it leads to anger, how it leads to compulsive activity that ends up harming us. And we can then ask, where is the, where is the grasping? Where are we fisted up? Where are we caught? And because we know how to bring mindful to it, mindfulness to our experience, we can feel it, the fist in our body. We can feel what the tension is in our body. We might feel the emotions. The desire, the greed that we might have for something might be really have a deep roots inside. It might be we feel really insecure and afraid. And we think, if I can have that, then I'll be safe. But that's fascinating to understand those deeper roots and then bring mindfulness to that. It might be a thing that because you're being mindful and you know how to be mindfulness of thinking, you start noticing the beliefs around what you're trying to grasp, what you're greedy for. If I have this, people will love me. If I could have this, then I'll be a success and everyone will have high status. If I could have this, then I'll have the pleasure that will put, make everything right. Something. You know, you fill in the blank. I'm just trying to make something up. But um, So, to live a life that... Two things. Will you see all these things so you can be wiser? And to live a life where you see them and you know from your direct experience something better. You know you can, like, you know, it's better not to grasp. It's better not to be caught in those comparisons. It's better to be settled than it is to be tense, agitated. There's a feeling of wholeness, feeling of contentment, feeling of peace, feeling of well-being that we can carry with us. It's better than a lot of other things. And so we do have a healthy comparison. There's, there's a place for comparisons. Oh, look at that. If I spend my day, you know, just pursuing everything that I want more, 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 that doesn't feel as good as a, a day where I live contented and peaceful and at home here, settled. At the end of the day, I fall asleep in the second way. The greedy way, I'm still spinning. Many years ago, when I was in my early 20s, um, I loved, you know, this is, you know, some of you, I hope I don't explain to you what this is, um, but uh, there was something called bookstores. <laughs> and there were lots of them. And, um, and I loved going into bookstores and uh, did a lot of reading. And, uh, but I, after a while I realized when I went to bookstores, I always was really exhausted and tired when I left. Why am I so tired? And, uh, and then I realized at some point what it was. was I, had, I had almost no money, so I couldn't buy any of the books that I saw. But I wanted a lot of the books. I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, and that one. And I was just consumed by greed, wanting, 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 wanting. And to spend an hour in a bookstore only wanting is exhausting. And that's what tired me out.
And when I realized that, then I went into bookstores, still went into bookstores, but then I kind of just chilled. I just kind of roamed around and looked for some sections and, you know, approached the bookstore in very different ways so I wouldn't get exhausted. So um, this is another example of wisdom operating, understanding the consequences, understanding the, what's better for us and what's worse for us, and having a clearer and clearer reference point that that's, uh, for some people it's unimaginable the degree of peace and happiness we're capable of experiencing. The unimaginable, the, the feeling of feeling fulfilled, feeling happy with ourselves, for no reason at all, just because we're alive in this beautiful way. We don't have to be fulfilled, our desires don't have to be fulfilled for us to be settled and happy. You can just sit and meditate and feel greater degree of peace than maybe that you feel any, any other time. And the beautiful thing that happens with this practice is that then your inner well-being sense of well-being inside becomes less and less dependent on what's happening in the world. And you're no longer a victim where your well-being is influenced by whoever comes along and, and uh, praises you or blames you. Then you're kind of like at their whim. But if you carry your own confidence and well-being and happiness, that's that doesn't depend on what, how people think about you, then you're not so caught in that world. Let them think what they do. That's not dependent on having the latest and the greatest device that's out there. That happiness only lasts for an hour after you get the device or something like that. But the happiness of this inner device, inner connection, that we can get with ourselves, that can last for a long time. So, um, <clears throat> now it's your turn. And if we have time, we can do another little meditation. But do you have any uh, questions now about any of this and what I said today and what's happened here or um, about these uh, weeks we've been together? Yes, please. There you go. Um, this is maybe kind of a trivial thing, but uh, I think of some of the practice as it from kind of a scientific or curious point of view. So, like with distractions, when you were talking about doing one thing at a time, yeah. I, uh, I have habits of multitasking. And so I will, just lately I've been do, trying the habit of just eating and not reading. I can talk to, you know, I can talk, but I just, just eating and seeing what that's like. So I guess this is more of a comment than a question that I'm just approaching some parts of the practice from that sort of practical, let's just try it, 
see what happens. I love it. That's that, that's the spirit of this practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's how we become our own teacher in this practice by trial and error, experimenting, trying things out, seeing what we learn. That's definitely the way to go. And that's even true in meditation. There's a little bit of we try things out. Like oh, today, I'm just going to stay more with my breath. What's that like? Or and then was, noticing how hard it is. Like when I start, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, the, oh, the newspaper's over there. I yeah. could read. No, yeah, don't yeah. read. Exactly. So I think I, 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 that's very, very, very gratifying for me to know that you're approaching it that way with experimentation and learning. That's fantastic. That's that's the way to become wise. Thank you. Um, it's more of a comment, just appreciating something that you were just talking about. Um, I found the idea really interesting of trying to understand why we want the things we want. Because, um, you know, I'm aware that there's this kind of constant engine of desire. I don't think I'm alone. <laughs> and um, And we live in a very materialistic society also and um, so I, I think the next step after recognizing that you have kind of non-stop desires is actually looking underneath and asking yourself what the root of it is and right. for some reason that never occurred to me before uh-huh. but I really like the idea a lot yeah. that's fantastic so, so there's a number of ways to get to the roots under the surface to see what's going on. I mean, you, a person can go for a walk and think about it, reflect on it, and analyze in this kind of more intellectual way. People can go to therapy for that kind of purpose and find out the, the historical roots of these things. In the, in the mindfulness practice, it's, w- it's one way, out, one approach out of many approaches. And I'm not saying this is the best approach or the right approach. But just to uh, give you the full power in in a way that mindfulness works, we're not thinking our way, we're not analyzing, we're actually being very simple. So we would bring careful attention to the experience of desire. And as we stay centered centered on the desire, get to know what it feels like in the body, what it feels emotionally, what's happening in the thinking mind, what's happening in the breathing, you start seeing what's going on, then at some point, things begin kind of clearing up or breaking open a little bit. And then what jumps up at you, what comes to you, what gets revealed, not through analysis, not by figuring anything out, oh, underneath that desire, there's anxiety. Oh, anxiety is the root of it. It could be something else. I'm just, um, so the point being, we're not trying to go below the surface in this practice. We're trying to be with what's obvious in such a way that whatever needs to be revealed will show itself to us. We don't have an agenda in, in the moment. In the bigger picture, we do have the agenda. Like, yeah, I really want to get to the root of this. And Gail says, all I have to do is just stay really present, and then it'll come. Okay, so I'm going to be present without an agenda because that's a good, you know, that's, Gail says that's how it fulfills my agenda. It's, but it's kind of true. Just be present, for, you know. So just just be with the obvious, 
the hallmark of this kind of mindfulness is is just be present for what's obvious and then what's obvious unfolds and changes as you stay and be present and over time you get through the layers and the depth um, I've been practicing with is my the volume okay? yes for me it's good okay um, I've been practicing with trying to stay present with really kind of strong, unpleasant, difficult emotions when they arise. And sometimes it's really tricky to do, um, especially like with anger. It's like there's a heat to it and just it's it's tough to stay with it. Um, I appreciated some things that you said in the last number of sessions that that have been helpful for this. Things like I love the analogy of um, it was something about not looking a cat right in the eyes, <laughs> just kind of coming up alongside it and, and waiting for it or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And just wanted to take the opportunity to ask if you have any other suggestions or guidance for how to be able to stay present with really kind of you know big emotions or tough emotions. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, there's, I mean, that's a lot to be said. Uh, but uh, like with this really strong anger, um, a nice thing to do if, is not meditate with it, but maybe go for a long walk and, and give freedom to the anger, give freedom to your thinking, but be present. And so there's something about walking, the rhythm of walking, for me at least, that keeps me from getting stuck in my thoughts, stuck in whatever's happening. And then, but I'm paying attention, to, but I'm also giving it freedom. I'm not trying to stop it. I'm just letting it run. And then, because then, so I'm, I'm, it's easier to be present for it that way sometimes than it is sitting still. The walking helps it all, and that might be a good way to kind of practice mindfulness while walking. That's bit by bit you kind of start kind of breaking it open. The other thing to do is sometimes with strong emotions like anger is, um, uh, again, sometimes it's helpful to just let the thinking just run. Don't, don't try to stop the thinking. But uh, because maybe that's even needed. Who knows? But anger, it's, you know, some powerful process is going on. We don't even know what's going on. So in this practice, we want to be respectful of all emotions, so even anger. Um, but what I found really helpful is to keep what I call composting it in the body. So every time I notice that I'm thinking about my angry thoughts, feeling angry, I have enough wherewithal to be present, I feel the anger, how it's being expressed in the body, how it feels in the body. And for me, that's called composting in the body. And I keep referring back to the body, the body. And every time I do that, I'm kind of disengaging a little bit with the story, but I'm not trying to stop the story. And I find that if I do that over and over again, something very different begins to happen. But I have to be very careful not to uh, want a quick fix. I just be patient and just go, okay, just feel it in the body, feel it in the body. If there's grief, uh, it can be very much the same way. Uh, grief, uh, grief is more, more commonly recognized that uh, the heart knows how to grieve if we get out of the way, if we allow it. And so the art of it, allowing it is to allow it without sinking into it without participating in it, but radical allowance to grieve. You're allowed to cry all you want in this meditation as long as you sit reasonably straight. And, but as soon as you go, oh, poor me, then you're participating. And then, then the inner 
movement, the inner processing that can, the heart knows how to do, gets interrupted. So, so I've known people who sat like this. Look, they, you know, from a distance they look like they're deep in meditation, not moving, and their cheeks are streaming with tears. That, that's fine. Um, yeah, just a um, experience I had um, last session, actually last week, that this is making me think of. So I came in here and was feeling some anger about something else. And um, so I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm here. Let me try and be present with this. And something switched, and it was grief, actually. And so I was like, okay, let me try and be with the grief. And when I was with the grief and not in the story about the grief, it was like it got silent, actually. And it wasn't grief, it was something else. I don't Fantastic. know. Fantastic, yeah. That's what, so you're describing very well what can happen here. And, um, and uh, because you weren't in the story. The story sometimes feeds the problem. The story is kind of participating it and feeding it. But if we cannot be involved in the story, all kinds of other things have a chance to happen. That was beautiful. I mean, for, from my point of view, as an example, the potential here. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you. And you spoke on Sunday about um, one aspect of, in, in your talk, was about community. And I think I'm very new to this, so I, I really appreciate the opportunity to meet some people that are also on the path, and I think we're all kind of on our own separate paths, but uh, towards self-improvement or discovery, and I uh, just want to say thank you for great for this community. Thank you very much. So that's another thing in terms of uh, learning to bring this practice more into your life and spread it out. It's actually helpful from time to time to go meditate with the other people. And uh, so we're here, so you're welcome to come here, but there might be, I don't know where you live, there are other groups you can go to. But there's something that um, about the osmosis of being around other people who are doing this kind of practice that something we learn from other people. We're mirrored by other people very differently in this kind of environment than we are you know, in a hectic uh, work environment. Um, we model things for each other. We model how we behave when we're connected to ourselves in a deeper way that uh, sometimes is hard to see in, in other, other uh, places in this world. We can be inspired. Um, I know that uh, some teenagers and kids um, uh, will f- think that their parents are really strange because they meditate, like weird. Uh, but then they find out that they come like to a children's program here, and they find out other parents meditate, and suddenly their kid, their parents are not so weird. Actually, now they're kind of cool. And um, so anyway, so as adults, you know, it can help also that, you know, that, you know, you're around people who have similar values. And uh, as I said, there's this uh, ethics antenna that we, we tune into in this practice. So there tends to be a little higher ethical values, just ethical norm in this kind of environment. And so when you're not gossiping, you come here and, um, and you don't feel strange here. So it's a little bit reassuring that you're around people who understand you. And, um, and then, uh, and then uh, sometimes, some people find it a lot easier to meditate when they're meditating in a group. Some people find it harder. 
for the people who it's easier, it's, this is available. Come here and whenever we have, have a session here, you're welcome to come. And, um, and we have all kinds of programs. And a lot of these programs are ways of building a practice or expanding it and developing it further and further. And we have a whole, a whole series of progressive programs that you could be busy here for years because we have so, we have so much, you know, in terms of just, you know, progressively developing, maturing this practice more and more. So that's another way of continuing is just to hang out in a place like IMC. So, well, maybe we should we only have five minutes and... Um, I want to thank you. I appreciate this chance. As I said, I think the first the first day, I love actually teaching the intro class. I find it very lots of fun and interesting. And I'm I'm also always seeing what what else what's new going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> Am I going to learn something today? You know, and and uh, so so that's this is kind of uh, wonderful for me to be part of this too. So, thank you. And um, I used to teach these three times a year. I'll probably, I'll probably try to do it again in the fall, maybe in August. Um, there's some talk about some other people here teaching one, an, an intro class. Is that right? Yes, that's right? Yeah, so Tom's going to come and teach one maybe in some afternoon, like a Tuesday afternoon. Maybe in the next couple of months. Maybe. So it'll be in the newsletter, hopefully, and it'll be in the calendar. And then also Diana Clark has also been talking about wanting to do one. Uh, she's one of our teachers here. And so she, she, does, she, she might incorporate it into her Monday. She teaches every Monday. And she might do an intro class on one of her Monday series. So we're going to start, slowly start doing more here. So some people come back repeatedly to the intro class. At first I was worried that, you know, <laughs> that, you know am I not teaching well enough? <laughs> but... Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's, I, I, it's all... So I'll end with this uh, piece of wisdom. And maybe, I don't know, I don't think I said it here. I say things in all kinds of settings I don't remember. So in, in, this, in meditation, there's only two types of people. There's beginners and experienced beginners. Then you can decide which you, which you are. But either way, we're all beginners. Isn't that nice? I think that's great. So you, then you have to then you don't have to compare yourself to the experienced ones. They're advanced advanced meditators. There's no advanced meditators. They're just experienced beginners. <laughs> and uh, so, well, thank you for being part of this very much. And uh, and if you come back to IMC, I look forward to seeing you and and um, or some other way. And uh, may this mindfulness practice support you in your life. Thank you. Oh, and then, uh, you know, Tom is available, Nancy is available, and this Nancy, the two Nancys, if you want to check in now, if you have any questions for them, and I'm here for a bit, so you're welcome to talk to me too. Thank you.